You're listening to episode 106 of 88 Cups of Tea with Yin Cheng. Am I doing this right? <laughs> Hi, I'm your host, Yin Cheng, and thanks for joining me on 88 Cups of Tea. This podcast is created to leave you feeling motivated from interviews with storytellers, where we learn how they create opportunities for a successful career without losing sight of the values that make us human. Woo, that was a really long run on sentence. Hey, what's up, storytellers? A very warm welcome to our new 88 Cups of Tea listeners. As a quick overview of our podcast, I interview really inspiring and awesome storytellers in hopes that their personal experiences and advice will empower you and make you feel less alone in your storytelling journey. To all of you wonderful listeners who've been with us for a while, thank you so much for hanging out with us every week. I am sending over a massive virtual hug to our listeners who recommended and shared our podcast with friends and took the time to leave us iTunes ratings and reviews. It means so much to me and it's such a big help in growing our community. So a very big thank you. If you're looking for a sense of family with a bunch of people who understand the highs and lows of being a writer, you need to join our private Facebook group at facebook.com groups slash 88 cups of tea. I love this community of ours and I always have the best time with them. We check in almost every day to talk about our work in progress, our latest achievements, current reads, and so much more. We sincerely have the most encouraging and supportive members in our group, so you don't want to miss out on all the awesomeness. Come over and hang out with us at facebook.com groups slash 88 cups of tea. In today's new episode, we have E. Lockhart, the author of the New York Times bestseller, We Were Liars. We dig deep into her newest novel, Genuine Fraud, where you'll learn about the inspiration behind the book and its main characters. E walks us through how she structured her novel and tackled the challenging timeline, and how she wrote her first action sequence by studying other great action sequences. Further into our conversation, we discuss how she creates effective and realistic story settings, and how she creates emotional resonance in her writing. Craft-focused writers will want to pay special attention to our chat about unreliable narrators and why it's crucial to never lie to the readers. Switching over to a more personal topic, E walks us through one of the most difficult times in her career and how it became a blessing in disguise that navigated her to the success that she has today. We wrap up the episode with incredibly actionable advice for you to achieve your writing goals. Now let's jump right in. Hey everyone, we have E Lockhart with us today. E, how are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Oh, I'm so happy to have you here, and I know listeners were very excited to have you on the show. You are quite popular with our group, and they were very excited to hear that we we're going to chat. I know that your most recent book, Genuine Fraud, was released early September. I'd love for us to jump into that. Before we get into all the details, could you give us a snapshot of Genuine Fraud? Sure. It's a psychological thriller. In something of the vein of my previous novel, We Were Liars, but with more action, more blood, more wigs and makeup. And it's set all over the globe. They go to London and Puerto Rico and Mexico and New York City and San Francisco, Martha's Vineyard, all kinds of other places. It's really at its center, the story of two young women who have a very intense friendship, who also look enough alike to share a passport. What was the inspiration for this book and your two characters, Imogen and Jewel? What were their inspirations for those characters as well? 
Well, I wanted to write an anti-hero story about a young woman. I really like anti-hero stories, both the kind where it's a problematic but sympathetic hero, like the Incredible Hulk, for example, right? He's a hero, but he's also very troubled and he's out of control. Like that kind of anti-hero story, but I also like the kind where the person at the center of the story is totally a bad person, like Scarface or The Sopranos or Breaking Bad, but you nonetheless sympathize with that person or understand that the story is saying something about the human condition and what we are capable of as people and the darkness that lies inside of all of us. For me, Genuine Fraud is the exploration of the darkness that lies inside a young, cute woman that most people don't think of as being dark in any way. Ooh, how much fun did you have writing the characters, especially the dark parts? Oh, so much fun. I mean, the dark parts (laughs) are actually sort of hard to write. The action sequences especially were very fun. I had never written action before. I went out and reread stories that I had loved that had really good action sequences and kind of took tips from from those writers who were experienced at writing action. It was fun to have this. She's very petite, Jewel. She's only five foot two, and there are scenes where she kicks people, kicks them to the curb, let's say. That was fun. And then there's also scenes where she commits acts that are pretty appalling. You have action sequences where you cheer for her, and you also have action sequences where you don't. And I wanted my readers to be put in both of those divisions. Are there any real people that you drew specific characteristics from Imogen or Jewel from? Mostly my characters just come from me. I try to give them emotional lives that reflect some part of my own psychology that I want to explore. Little pieces of my friends and acquaintances go in. For example, Imogen is Jewel's close friend in the novel, and she is an heiress who has run away from her family of origin and is making a new life for herself. And she has sort of stopped talking to her parents and she's made them very stressed out. One thing about Imogen is that she's adopted and her grandparents caused a lot of ruckus about the fact that she is adopted into a Jewish family and that her biological mother is therefore not Jewish. And so there's a lot of drama about her bat mitzvah because she hasn't been converted formally to the Jewish faith. That's something that has happened in families of people I know. Imogen is not based on those people in any other way, but that kind of family drama around adoption and religion can be very powerful. So I took little pieces like that, stitched them together with my own emotional life to make a character. I would love to dig a little deeper when you mentioned that part specifically about drawing inspiration from friends being from a Jewish religious background. How are you able to weave that in in a way that makes it feel like, oh my gosh, I know at least a few people in my life who've gone through that as well, just to create that emotional resonance? I write my central characters, if they feel real to people, it's because They're very close to me in lots of ways. I always ask myself over and over, where am I in this character, even when the character is committing bad acts or acting very differently than I would act. I'm looking for where my emotional truth is in that character. There's not a ton of religious stuff in the novel, but there is a little bit. 
although I am not particularly religious myself, in thinking about how Imogen's mother would act in that situation and how their family would come together around the issue. I've experienced family conflicts like that. I've experienced a desire to advocate for my child when someone else in my family might be criticizing my child or not valuing my child as much as I think my child should be valued. Looking at Patty Sokoloff, uh, Imogen's mother, she's an Upper West Side matron and she's extremely affluent and, and has a lot of blind spots. But I tapped into the part of me that could be a mama bear various other you know, elements of my own life that I could sort of transpose into understanding Patty's situation. Thank you for that. I also want to jump into the research process of your book overall because I know that the settings are really quite fabulous. So <laughs> could you share with the readers if there is research into that or if you've traveled to those places before? How did that come about? Zebra Liars is set almost entirely on one tiny island that only has four houses on it. So after writing something with a very tight setting, I wanted instead to write something with a very wide-ranging series of settings. So I was looking for a number of locations to set the action of the novel, and I started out kind of just fantasizing about places that would be fun to read about. And in the end, I found that I was unable to write anywhere that I hadn't been. Because although you can read a million travel essays and see beautiful photographs online, there's really no substitute for having spent time somewhere. So all of the places in the novel are basically places that I have been anyway. I couldn't go back to them <laughs> writing Genuine Fraud, but I could take some time to remember and remind myself by looking online and by looking at photographs of places that I'd been. But I needed to write small details of like how apartments look and how markets look and how it smells and what the rhythms of the day are like and what, it, what the light looks like and that kind of thing. And I couldn't do that for, for places I'd never been and have it ring true. On the same topic, now that we are getting really diving into the details, we have one of our listeners who asked actually quite a good question, Josie Gingrich. She yeah. asked, you did so many cool and complicated things with time shifts and carefully doling out information in both We Were Liars and Genuine Fraud. How did you organize your writing process with such intricate structures? How much did you outline in advance? I, I really love that question. <laughs> yes, that's a really thoughtful question. Thank you. I'm working in a word processing program called Scrivener, which is very different from Microsoft Word. I highly recommend it. it and you can get a free trial, and it comes with a tutorial. And it's a very powerful program. I don't use all of the aspects of Scrivener, but I do use the elements of it that really allow me to see my structure. So I chunk my story into many small pieces, and then I move those pieces around. That makes a very big difference to my process. I couldn't structure something as complicated as viewer liars or genuine fraud without it. I'm glad you actually brought up Scrivener. Have you used their note cards? Oh my God, when I discovered that, I was like, wait, what? You have a million more things I didn't even realize that you had? And like Scrivener has everything you could think of. That makes sense that you're able to chart everything out with Scrivener because it's so powerful. I would totally get lost if I didn't have it, or my paperwork would all get thrown away. Um, <laughs> I'm curious, what did you edit out of this book? Of Genuine Fraud? Yeah. The biggest thing I edit is the story goes backwards. If 
people haven't read it yet. That's the thing that we've been talking about in terms of the structure and the time frame being complex. It starts with chapter 18, then you get to chapter 17, then you get to chapter 16, and so on, going backwards. There's a section near the end of the book where they're on the island of Martha's Vineyard, which is an island off the coast of Massachusetts, and they're living in this kind of big summer house, Jewel and Imogen, and Imogen's boyfriend, Forrest, and Imogen's friend from college, Brooke. They're having this summer of independence, playing at being grown-ups, just on the verge of being actual grown-ups. This section was very long and had a lot of scenes that I felt were like each scene was so important to developing a really good understanding of their friendship and all the things that would happen later on in their friendship. This is the time when they first got to know each other that is a catalyst for everything else that happens in the book. But it was very long, and there was no action in the Martha's Vineyard sequences. There was a lot of long conversations on the beach, and dinner parties, and you know, going to farmer's markets and things like that. So I ended up cutting about half of that section, um, which was mostly a pacing thing. And I think I probably needed to write all of that so that I would know my characters really well and mm. I would really understand their history. But you didn't really need to read all of it. And in that, in that <laughs> process, a whole character got cut, who was, oh. you know, an interesting character, but she was mainly symbolic. She sort of represented normalcy in some ways or an alternative path or an alternative way of life. She had to go by the wayside. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, at least it'll, like, give us a glimpse, like, if we ever visit exactly what to do, which farmer's market to go to. These are like cool little tidbits that I feel like most people might not know about. What was your most exciting thing about writing Genuine Flawed? What made you light up and you're just like, oh gosh, I can't wait to wake up and just get to it? Well, there was the idea of writing it backwards and there was the anti-hero theme. Another thing that really interested me was that for me, it's a very referential book. By that, I mean that there are echoes and re-echoes of many stories from, you know, from The Incredible Hulk to Great Expectations to Patricia Highsmith, The Talented Mr. Ripley, and many, many more. High culture, low culture, comic books, Victorian novels, thrillers, stories of unhappy, ambitious women, stories of class mobility. A ton of my reading of the past 25 years went into the making of this book. And hopefully you barely see it. You might see it here and there. For me, the idea was that I was writing in conversation with all of these other books and their impact on me. And that was very mm. energizing to think of myself mm. as, as part of this conversation. I love the way you put that. You know, when you're also talking about the books that you've been reading, do you remember if there's one fiction that really stood out to you that basically changed your mind about fiction or inspired you in a way that no other books have ever inspired you before? Hmm. I probably have a lot of books. The biggest influence on Genuine Fraud, which should be obvious to anybody who knows this book, is, is The Highsmith, The Talented Mr. Ripley, which blew my mind when I first read it because Patricia Highsmith, who was a crime fiction writer in the 50s and 60s, was the most incredible archaeologist of the underside of the soul. She wrote Strangers on a Train, which is made into that famous Hitchcock movie, and The Town of Mr. Ripley is probably her second most famous book, many other books as well. But she really looks at how people can become their worst selves and is very unflinching 
and kind of thrilling, you know. I think that when I first read her, I hadn't seen a writer do that before. And to me, it's very electric. I have to be honest, I haven't read that book, but you definitely sold it. So I'm <laughs> picking up a copy. So thank you for that. I know this is something that we also love is digging also into not just you as a writer, but as a human overall. And I feel like a lot of times it's talking about things that we all have in common, which is, you know, moments of failure in our lives or what we deem as failures. If you're okay with that, would love to tap into that time where maybe it's like the most difficult time in your life and how you were able to move past it. I have a pretty buoyant disposition. <laughs> and I think that is a, not everyone has it in their brain chemistry, and it's a blessing if you're in a profession where you're going to get rejected over and over and over, and that is true even now. I still get rejected. I have editors who don't like work that I've done. I have bad reviews. I have awards that I don't get or opportunities that pass me by. Early in my career, I was rejected even more than I am now, one thing that happened was that I had written five books, and none of them were for teenagers. They were adult books and, and books for little children. I really had no career. Like, none of those books had sold to very many readers. All of my editors had lost interest in me or had left publishing, and I was in the middle of trying to write second adult novel when my first had been basically a failure. The novel was stalled and it was I could tell it wasn't very good and I was very discouraged and I didn't have any editor who was waiting for it. I just could not make it work. I called my agent and I said, hey, I'm broke. <laughs> and I was teaching, teaching, teaching to make money. I said, I really think I just need to make money from writing. Could you find me anything that I could do? Ghostwrite something, write a Nancy Drew, write a cookbook for someone, anything where I could publish work and improve my craft and kind of stay in the game while I try to figure out what to do with this novel that is no good. And she came back to me in a couple of weeks with an editor at Random House who had read my adult novel and said that she would be interested to see a proposal from me, and it was very prescriptive. Would I write something that was like Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants by Anne Bouchers, which was a huge hit at the time? Would I write Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants, but maybe it's cheekier, kind of a little edgier, a little more uh, funny? I went out and I bought Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants, because I'd heard of it, but I hadn't read it. And I bought a lot of other <laughs> YA novels that were on the shelf at the same time, Gingerbread by Rachel Cohn, and I read All-American Girl by Meg Cabot, the Georgia Nicholson series by Louise Renison. I thought they were really great. I really enjoyed them. They were feminist and funny, very effervescent. I thought, yeah, I can do this. And so I sat down and I tried to create a book proposal that would fit the description. And I wrote The Boyfriend List. That would never have happened if I hadn't been in this state of despair, needing money, having no project, and feeling I had published books but was still not in any way a success. That door wouldn't have opened. And when yeah. the door did open, I went through it, and I went through it kind of as forcefully as I could. You know what I mean? I did my research. I embraced the opportunity, and I wrote the best thing I knew how. 
So I think in that way, there's a piece of advice to be learned in there. It's that sometimes it's the door opens and it's not the door you thought you were knocking on, but it's still a door and you can still charge through it and make the most of it having opened. That is such a badass story. It's one thing to say, I'm not doing so well. I hope I can get a job. And you know what? Maybe it's me coming from the acting industry where a lot of actors, when we're not having jobs, we're always waiting for the call because we feel like there's not much that we can do except for waiting for an audition. But then there's other people like go-getters like you who's like, "Uh uh-uh, nope, I'm knocking down this door. I'm going to prove myself. I know I need work, and I'm going to make it happen. You created your own door. I really admire that. Thank you so much for sharing that because that's going to inspire a hell lot of people. It shows, yes, many people need work, but what work are you willing to put in it to make that happen? And you did it. So very inspiring. Yeah, of course. And one of our listeners, Catherine Fraser, was saying, what was it like transitioning from lighter contemporary to darker books? And how did that shift come about? I like a new challenge. That's why I like to play around with structure in my books. Genuine Fraud is Backwards. We Rely Ours is in two mm-hmm. different time frames with these kind of fairy tale interstitials. The Boyfriendless books have footnotes. I'm very often looking for some kind of new challenge. So shifting genres was basically in the same spirit to move from writing comedies to writing psychological thrillers. I was like, oh, let me try to do this other thing instead of doing the same thing that I feel like I kind of already know how to do. I'm always looking for this, the new project to seem hard, I guess. You know, I think mm-hmm. that I'm not going to create my best work if I stay in totally familiar territory. It was really in some ways just a matter of setting a challenge for myself. And I love reading thrillers. I read a lot of thrillers, especially on audio. It's my favorite genre to read on audio. And it was a fairly natural place for me to go. I probably wouldn't have gone over to writing sci-fi, for example. My brain just doesn't work that well for sci-fi. It's just I'm not a great (laughs) invented world builder. I don't have a ton of, like, rigor for sorting out political systems and things like that, that you need to be able to write that kind of stuff. I picked a genre that I love and that I also thought my talents could do well in. Tara Charlie Creel was asking what advice you might have on writing excellent, unreliable narrators. And she says that you do it so well. We Were Liars has what most people call an unreliable narrator because she doesn't tell you the whole truth up front. But the thing that's true from my perspective with We Were Liars is that she, in fact, tells you everything she knows as you know it. She is trustworthy. She's not lying. She's never lying to you. She's telling you everything she understands, and as soon as she understands it, she tells you. She just doesn't know the whole picture. So in that sense, it's just like a mystery, right? She just tells you the solution to the mystery when she knows it. I don't think of her as unreliable, and I think that is one of the keys to creating a character that people connect with, even if you're going to have a big plot twist, is that if your readers know that you are withholding information from them, they don't trust you and they become less invested in the character. You want your reader to be invested, to feel on board and to care about the character. So if the character is obviously keeping her cards close to her chest and isn't sharing everything that she knows, certainly creates curiosity in the reader, but it also creates a disinvestment in the character, right? If you know that that character isn't, isn't really trustworthy. I never lie ever to my readers in all of my books. Genuine Fraud has a third-person narrator. 
there's a lot of sleight of hand there, but there's no lying. If you reread the book, you will not find a single untrue sentence. E, that was awesome. The way you put that, you never lie to your reader, is something I think that a private Facebook group might have never heard of before. So thank you for that. I like that you oh, really dive into you. that. Well, you guys <laughs> clearly have a really involved writing community. They're freaking awesome. This Facebook group started because of NaNoWriMo last year, and oh. it's just grown into something. We were just saying, hey, what if they just have this community where people can just check in to see how they're doing on a daily basis, literally every day for 30 days we checked in. Nice. It just morphed into something really beautiful, so much bigger than I ever thought it could be. The engagement is really incredible and the very thoughtful, very thoughtful listeners. And I'm very excited for them to hear everything that you shared today because I know they're going to really take it to heart. And I think just getting to also know authors too on the show, they usually fall in love with them. It's very exciting. It's, I almost feel like a matchmaker or something, <laughs> getting them married or something. I would love to wrap it up with rapid fire questions, tips, on writing query letters. Anything that comes to your mind, you can spit it out. The shorter, the better. Simple, but powerful. How important is a mentor to your career and your life overall? I never had a mentor. If you could do it again, do you think you would have a mentor? It would be nice. I just never had professors who particularly liked me. Those professors better be regretting it, okay? So just saying. (laughs) And the third and final rapid-fire question is, what are some small, manageable, actionable steps that you'd advise writers to take every week towards accomplishing their writing goals? I think the most important thing is understand your own psychology. Figure out what makes you do the work. One of my students recently said, oh, I'm writing so much fiction because you're making me write a critical essay. (laughs) In other words, the fiction was so much fun in comparison with the critical essay that she was writing a ton of fiction. Other people write best with a word count goal, right? You have to write 500 words a day. Other people write best with a Pomodoro system, 25 minutes on, 5 minutes off, 25 minutes on, 5 minutes off. Other people need a reward. At the end of whatever that is, you're going to get to, I don't advise cheesecake or chocolate, but you're going to get to call your friend on the phone or take a lovely walk outside or go to the gym or run an errand that you think is fun, or go to sleep, or whatever it is that you are going to get to do, but you set a reward for yourself. You know, other people basically need the reward for sitting down into the chair, you know, at the beginning. They need the lovely cup of tea and the music and the the snack. The thing is to get to know your particular psychology and what is going to get you to generate those words every day. You're awesome. Last final question, what are you most excited about right now overall? It could be work-related, anything. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) You're like, there's just Um, too many things. (laughs) Well, I'm about to go on tour for Genuine Fraud. I've been touring, now I'm home, and then I'm going back out. One of my favorite things to do when touring is to go to the teen book festivals. And I don't know if your writing community has gone to those kinds of festivals before, but if you haven't, you should. Y'all Fest in Charleston is my favorite one, and I'm going to be there this year. It's just a million teen readers running around the city of Charleston like lunatics, and it is so joyful and great, and the panels are funny and honest, and the spirit is just really great, really celebratory, and everyone kind of finds their people there. So I'm going to a couple festivals of that kind, and Y'all Fest is my favorite. 
Yes, I yeah. remember my listeners. I think a lot of them went to Y'all West, the one out in yeah. Santa Monica. Yeah, that's a sister festival they, in, in Santa Monica. Yeah. They mm-hmm. loved that one. Like, they spoke very highly of it. I remember visiting last year, and I was just so impressed with how everything was run. I was like, whoa, this is so legit. And I just loved everyone's enthusiasm. It just was so infectious. I just couldn't stop but smile. I'm so excited for you. That's amazing. Is there anything that you do to keep your energy up? Do you, like, have certain snacks? Or coffee, tea? <laughs> I do yoga in my hotel room every morning. Oh, my God. Okay. Done and done. I'm, like, trying to get into yoga. I lose <laughs> balance most of the time. You just inspired me to get back on the yoga track. Please let listeners know where they can find you to say hi. Well, if they actually want a response from me, the best place to go is find me on Twitter <laughs> at eLockhart because I answer people on Twitter. That's the only place that I do. I'm at emilylockhart.com, and I'm on Instagram at eLockhartBooks. And that wraps up our episode with E. Lockhart. Thank you so much for hanging out and listening in. Please say hi to E. on Twitter at E. Lockhart. For the books and resources mentioned in her episode, head over to 88cupsoftea.com slash podcast slash E dash Lockhart. If you enjoyed today's episode or if it helped you in any way, I would love to ask you for your support in taking a moment to subscribe to 88 Cups of Tea on iTunes and leave a rating and a review. Producing a podcast takes a lot of time, and we put a lot of heart and soul into making 88 Cups of Tea the best that it can be. When you take those specific actions of subscribing and leaving a rating and a review, that really helps our show become more visible to new listeners who haven't heard of us before, and we're really trying to get the word out about our podcast. Thank you so much in advance for helping us grow our community. Before I go, don't forget to join our private Facebook group if you want to hang out with fellow writers and listeners from 88 Cups of Tea. I am so excited to see you in there. You can find us at facebook.com slash groups slash 88 cups of tea. Have an amazing and super productive rest of your week and I'll catch you next Thursday. Hey guys, it's me again. Thanks so much for listening in on 88 cups of tea. Go create something magical today and I'll catch you in the next episode. Bye.